Ati Devi, Gauravani Pacharani, Nivasesa Sunyavadi Paskatyade Satarani, Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavasha, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana, Raghunatham Vitam Sam Sajivam, Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitam Sha, Panchakalpachibhisha, keep us in the Vyabhata, Pachanapavanayavaishnivinamoha. Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Somehow I lost the. Oh. All right, I'm just trying to figure out how to do this. So, yeah, we go. Okay, today is June 3rd, 2020, from Hawaii over Zoom. And we're looking at Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 20, Lord Vishnu's appearance in the sacrificial arena, arena of Maharaj Prithu, Text 33. Tatvam Karumaya Dishtam Apramata Prajapate Madadesha Karoloka Sarvatrapnoti Sarvatrapnoti Shobanam Please chant Tut Therefore Therefore Twam You you. Kuru. Kuru. Do. Do. Maya. Maya. By me. By me. Adishtam. Adishtam. What is ordered? What is ordered? Without being misguided. Without being misguided. Prajapate. Prajapate. O master of the citizens. Oh, master of the citizens. Mat. Mat. Of me. Of me. Adesha Kadaha. Who executes the order. Who executes, executes the order. Lokaha. Lokaha. Any person. Any person. Sarvatra. Sarvatra. Everywhere. Everywhere. Apnoti. Achieves. Achieves. Shobhanam. Shobhanam. All good fortune. Eighteen participants in the conference. Recording history. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. Okay. Just getting on the computer right now. Okay. I hope you can hear me. Shilaprabha's translation. My dear king. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't do that right. Oh, protector. Unmuted. Okay, now what to do? Can you say something? Yes. Hi, Krishna. Well, sir. Thank you. Srila translation. My dear king, O protector of the citizens, henceforward be very careful to execute my orders and not be misled by anything. Anyone who lives in that way, simply carrying out my orders faithfully, will always find good fortune all over the world. Srila Prabhupada's purport. The sum and substance of religious life is to execute the orders of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and one who does so is perfectly religious. In Bhagavad Gita 1855, the Supreme Lord Krishna says, Manmana Bhavamad Bhakta, just think of me always and become my devotee. Furthermore, the Lord says, Sarva Dharma Pricha Jamam Ekam Sharanam Vraja. 
give up all kinds of material engagement and simply surrender unto me, Bhagavad Gita 1866. This is the primary principle of religion. Anyone who directly executes such an order from the personality of Godhead is actually a religious person. Others are described as pretenders, for there are many activities going on throughout the world in the name of religion, which are not actually religious. For one who executes the order of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, however, there is only good fortune throughout the world. Tatvam ku mayadisham apramata prajapate mar adesha karo lokaha sarvatrap noti shobanam. My dear king, O protector of the citizens, henceforward be very careful to execute my orders and not be misled by anything. Anyone who lives in that way, simply carrying out my orders faithfully, will always find good fortune all over the world. So, this is the standard prayer, all Hindus. <laughs> you know, anyone who follows the Vedas, let there be good fortune for everyone. Let there be good fortune for everyone. It's explained that right before Lord Krishna appeared thousands of years ago, that there was good fortune for everyone. Prahlad Maharaj is praying like that. Let there be good fortune for everyone. And, uh, you know, of course we all want good fortune for our, ourselves, but in a mood of non-enviousness, one wants good fortune for oneself and for everyone. And here we'll find everyone, lokaha, everyone. It doesn't, sarvatra, it doesn't matter where you are, you will get shobhanam. Everything will be auspicious. It doesn't matter, you know, what is your gender, what is your age, how much melanin you have in your skin, what language you speak, what country you're from, you know, what your IQ is, how physically abled you are. It doesn't matter. Anybody, everybody can achieve good fortune. Everyone and anyone can achieve good fortune uh, simply by doing these two things. And what is that? Uh, to always follow the orders of Krishna without any pramataha, without any bewilderment. Always to follow the orders of the Lord without any bewilderment. So what do we mean by auspiciousness? What do we mean by good fortune? And why does what is doing these two things give us that good fortune? And what are the instructions of the Lord to what what does it mean not to become bewildered? So what does good fortune mean? And sometimes we might take good fortune, shobhanam, as externals. You know, I've got good health, and I have a lot of money in the bank, and everybody is nice to me, um, I know a lot of things, I've got a lot of uh, beauty and luxury in my life, I'm not very attached or affected by anything going on in my life. People follow me, they listen to me, they show me respect. So these are all of the six opulences, right? Uh, if we feel like if we're full of these six opulences, then we are shobhanam, shobhanam life. Or as the prayers of Queen Kunti, we could say, if we have a good family, you know, we're beautiful, we're wealthy we're uh, educated, we have good fortune. And, you know, that's, that's true. Uh, that's certainly true, that, that those things are evidence of good fortune, they're evidence of good karma, they're evidence of engaging in yajna. But beyond that, really, is that we're happy. <laughs> we're full of joy, Brahmabhuta Prasanatma, because we all know of people who have those opulences and are not joyful. If you can't think of any, just look at the news and there'll be some account of some person who's rich, famous, beautiful, powerful, uh, etc., even detached, <laughs> and is not uh, happy. And conversely, there's people who don't have practically any of those things and who are happy. So real good fortune is that we're filled with happiness not just that we have some kind of freedom and detachment, which is one of the six material opulences and spiritual opulences, but that uh, we're full of joy. We're full of joy and 
we are uh, experiencing, we're full of joy in rasa, in real rasa. We're experiencing love, we're experiencing some sort of loving relationships in some of those five primary and seven secondary rasas. So this is really good fortune. And how do we know that's really good fortune? (laughs) Because we all experience that when we are happy and we're having rasa, then we think the world is wonderful and when we don't, we think the world is terrible even if our externals have not changed. Even if the money we have in the bank has not changed, our health level hasn't changed, the beauty in our environment hasn't changed, the amount of power and influence we have hasn't changed, our amount of knowledge and wisdom hasn't changed, Uh, Still, we consider ourselves auspicious or inauspicious, our life auspicious and inauspicious, by how joyful we feel, how hopeful we feel, how grateful we feel, uh, how much we feel that we love others, that we can effectively show our love for others, how much we feel that others can are effectively showing their love to us. These things make us feel that life is auspicious. And when, when people are happily in love, the whole world seems auspicious. And when we're not, everything seems inauspicious. So this is our real auspiciousness that we're that we're looking for. And we're, this is that we have peace, also, of course. So why does following the instructions of the Lord without craziness? We have these two, adishtam and apramataha. So to follow the Lord's instructions and not to become uh, pramata means mad almost to use perhaps a a politically incorrect word, crazy. That we're bewildered, illusioned, we're confused. So to follow instructions without becoming confused. Why do these two things give us happiness? And the answer to this is is just so simple that it's, it's almost absurd. And that is, the Lord is the absolute truth. Param Satvam. He's the supreme truth. Now, I've heard people object to this word absolute truth, thinking that it's sectarian, thinking that we're saying, well, we have the absolute truth, and you know, all the rest of you don't. But we're not speaking about absolute truth in a sectarian context. We're speaking about absolute truth in the terms of what is true. Here we have lokaha saratra. What is true for everybody always? What are those things that are true for everybody always? And Krishna is true, that there's the Supreme Lord, is true for everybody always. There's always a Supreme Lord. That doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what species you are, what planet you're in, uh, what time it is in history. There's a Supreme Lord, and he is, uh, he is the controller of everything. Right? He is the friend of everyone. He controls everything, he enjoys everything, he's the friend of everyone. That is true always. That is always true for everybody, all the time. And when we act in harmony with that truth, then everything's auspicious. Right? When we act in harmony with that truth, everything is suspicious. When those who know the truth about Krishna, when they act in harmony with that, when they're absorbed in that, then they become happy. And I've given this example a gazillion times that I'm in a room, my room has walls, my room has actually one, two, three, four, five walls, and one door and one window. So if I want to act in harmony with the truth of this room, I will open the window when I'm hot, I won't try to break a hole in the wall if I'm feeling hot. If I want to exit the room, I will go out the door. If I want to hang a picture on the wall, I want to hang a picture up, I will use the walls. I will not try to hang a picture on the door. I will not try to hang a picture on the window. I will use the room the way it's intended to be used. I will use the wall for a wall. I will use the door for a door. I will use the window for a window. I mean, it, it sounds so self-evident as to be ridiculous. I have a glass here of water. If 
I want to be happy, I will use the glass to hold the water and I will use the water to drink. I will not try to hold the glass in the water, I will not try to eat the glass. I will act with my environment the way it is. <laughs> There's some objective truth and my actions will match that of objective truth. Right, that serenity prayer that I will change the things I can and I, I have the courage to change the things I can and I'll, I'll be willing to leave alone the things I can't and I'll know what the difference is. I'll know what, what can I do, what can I not do. Now why is it that if I work in accord with the truth I'll be happy? Because the truth is happiness. The truth is Satchit Ananda Vigraha. The absolute truth itself is full of happiness, full of meaning, full of love, full of understanding, full of knowledge, full of existence. And therefore, when I'm acting in accord with that truth, I will experience that I'm eternal, I'll experience that I exist, I'll experience understanding, I'll experience happiness, I'll experience love, because that's what the absolute truth is. And when I act out of harmony with the truth, I will not experience those things. So as soon as I act in harmony with what's real, my life becomes auspicious because what's real is, is auspicious. Now, of course, somebody may argue that there's an a priori assumption here that the absolute truth is happy, that the absolute truth is auspicious, that, that's, or that it, there exists an absolute truth. Uh, those are certainly a priori assumptions. But all of us human beings act as if those, as if we believe those things. All human beings act as if there's some sort of objective reality that if they could figure it out and act in accord with it, that they would have auspiciousness. Even the criminals do that. You know, they have some assumptions about what ultimate reality is, what it means, and that if they were to act in accord with that, that they would be happy. So, you know, if someone has a theoretical philosophy that there's no absolute truth, there's no God, or they have a theoretical philosophy that the absolute truth is very punishing, very dictatorial, there's a lot of religions today that portray God like that. That's not how people behave. People behave as if, if I could just figure out what was going on and I could act in accord with that, that I would be happy. So the fact that human beings in general behave that way is a strong indicator that such is the fact. Otherwise, we'd find a really disparate behavior among human beings. At least that's one strong evidence for the fact. All right, so how do we act in accord with reality? How do we act in accord with the absolute truth in order to find auspiciousness? Because if we just take this one verse in isolation, Adishtam, what is ordered, Aparamata, without being misguided. Do what's ordered without being misguided. My first question in reading this verse was, huh, what's being ordered? Now for that, one has to look a little earlier in the conversation that's taking place between Lord Vishnu and Maharaj Prithu, who, interestingly enough, is a Shaktivesh avatar. <laughs> So that's, that's kind of interesting in, in and of itself. But putting that aside for right now, what is Lord Vishnu telling Maharaj Prithu as his representative on earth that are his instructions? So he says that one should act for the welfare of others without malice to anyone. And although such may not seem that obviously apparent from a cursory glance at the world, such is the mood of the absolute truth. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that no one is his friend and he doesn't envy anyone. And everything, everyone does, everything that is done for everyone, sorry, by the Lord, as Prabhupada says in his purport to Bhagavad Gita 15, is all good and merciful. The, the Lord's intention is good and merciful and the Lord knows what is actually good and merciful for all living entities. Though, again, from our perspective, we may not understand that. From the relationship of us to the Lord, we're so small, and our vision is so occluded, that it's very difficult for us to assess 
what is really good for us, what will really bring us happiness. And, you know, I'm thinking about when we find a little insect in our room. There's a story where Prabhupada called his servant Shudhikirti into the room, and he says, this bug has been in my room for a long time. Please take it outside. It must be hungry. But as we've all experienced, if you're moving an insect, you know, the insect becomes frantic. You know, if you're picking it up and, and moving it, the insect is it's like, oh, what's happening? Why am I flying through the air on, on this conveyance? Where am I going? And uh, the, the insect may try to even sting you or hurt you, not realizing that you're giving the insect its freedom. And we've seen this if we have an insect that's stuck on a closed window or a closed glass door or on a window screen or sometimes on a mirror, but often it's attracted by the outside light or by the breeze coming through the screen. And it can be really difficult to get that insect from this fruitless <laughs> endeavor for happiness to the actual outside. You know, again, we've all experienced this, that we're, we're trying to take this insect that's banging itself on our window or on our screen, and we're trying to take it to the open door or to the open window and get it. We're trying to give it its freedom, but it doesn't perceive it like that. It perceives that we're an enemy. It perceives that we're trying to harm them. And such is true with, you know, pets, dogs and cats, that the owners may be taking the dog or cat to the veterinarian for some treatment and the animal screaming and, and running away and not wanting to be taken. Is it is true even with human children that, you know, the, the child wants to do something that's harmful for them. They want to play with a sharp knife or something like that and the parents have to give the child something that's for their benefit but the child doesn't appreciate it. The child is not grateful. The child doesn't see that the parents are acting for their own good. But Krishna is always acting for the welfare of others without any malice to anyone. Krishna has no malice even to very evildoers. I mean, we as human beings may feel malicious towards evildoers, especially if they do evil to us or our loved ones. But Krishna never thinks like that. Krishna never thinks, oh, I have some, I want harm for this person. When it says in the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna pushes the, the demons into the lowest forms of existence where they can't remember him, he's doing that out of kindness because they don't want to remember him. They're saying, I want to forget you, I want to forget your existence. So Krishna's saying, fine, go into the species, go into the situation where remembrance of me will be all but impossible. And that way you can have what you want. So our acting in harmony with the Supreme is that everything we do should be for the welfare of others without malice. Wow, that's a hard thing to do. It's a really, really hard thing to do. And I had one professor at, at UNC Chapel Hill in the doctoral program who did a, a class with us where he was talking about win-win that our agreement should be win-win. And everybody's nodding their head. Oh, yes, yes, I agree that all agreements, all dealings should be win-win. And then he gave us a, a group exercise to do, which he did every class. He always had some interactive thing to do. And all of his interactive things to do had some kind of trick to them. So I don't know why we never learned over the semester that, oh, this is going to have some trick to it. So we split us up on three tables. Each table had two teams. And we had to agree on what would be our school colors. That was theoretically what would be our school colors. And he had rigged it so that the two teams had opposite points that they would get for the same set of colors. So team A would get two points for purple and gold. And team B would get minus two points for purple and gold. But there was one set of colors that would give each team zero. So all the other sets of colors, they'd either give you positive or negative numbers, which would be opposite to the team that you were dealing with. And nobody was able, not, none of the three groups of two teams each, 
were able to negotiate an agreement after wherever it was, 15 or 20 minutes, because nobody would negotiate for zero. Everyone tried to get at least one, but the other team wouldn't want to get a negative one. And when the subterfuge of this professor was revealed, I was aghast. I was just flummoxed and astounded and humbled and whoa! I didn't want win-win. I wanted to get at least a one. I wanted to get at least a one. I was privy to a negotiation between some devotees where they decided in advance that each party was going to be concerned with the benefit of the other. But they weren't really able to do that. They weren't really able to do that. When when a third party looked at the agreement and said, wow, this agreement is heavily in favor of Group A and really disadvantages Group B, Group A was not then able to make any kind of adjustment for the benefit of Group B, even though they had agreed that in the beginning. So really working for the welfare of others is very, very difficult for us. We generally want some sort of profit. Prabhupada talks about profit, adoration, and distinction not have any malice towards others. That's also very difficult. Not only do we not want to really benefit others uh, above ourselves, we don't mind benefiting others, but not above ourselves. We also tend to want harm to come to those who we have felt harmed us or may harm us. And uh, we're, we're seeing this going on right now in the United States with the, the riots and the protests, it's based on this idea of malice. You know, that these people are harming us and therefore we wish harm to them. And this is, this is true on, on both sides. You know, let us harm those who have harmed us. And I'm not saying that everybody's guilty of that, but there's certainly a lot of people guilty of that. Let's harm those who have harmed us. So that's one of the instructions of the Lord. And if we do that, everything will be auspicious. <laughs> And we have to do that without being misguided, without rationalizing, without any pramita, without rationalizing why we don't have to work for the welfare of others or why we can have malice to others. Just no bewilderment. Then the other instructions of Maharaj Prithu, uh, he asked some others, I mean of Lord Vishnu to Maharaj Prithu, he asked some others about others, about dealing with others. He says to treat others equally. It was interesting that his instructions are to treat others equally even if they are higher or lower because usually we're told to distinguish how we treat higher and lower. But he's saying treat others equally. And I understand this not equal behavior. I'm not going to treat a 2-year-old and a 20-year-old with equal behavior but with equal concern, not to privilege anyone. Because you could say, well, I'm working for everyone's welfare, but I'm working for his welfare more than his welfare. No, equally for everyone's welfare. And then with no malice towards others, he goes further, stay equal poise. Not just don't act maliciously, but stay in an in equal poise condition. No one is my friend, no one is my enemy. Be undisturbed in happiness and distress. Control one's mind and senses. Now, often this undisturbed in happiness and distress and control the mind and senses is taken as a kind of repression, um, as a kind of denial. It's much more a matter of a detachment. It's much more a matter of a no attachment, no aversion. Uh, okay, that's the mind and the senses. That's happiness and distress, but it's not really touching me. Uh, then he also says to do one's duty to instruct the citizens, protect the citizens. This is very specific for Maharaj Prithu as, as is said here, the Prajapate, and may not be specific for each of us. So, so far what we looked at are universal principles, any person everywhere, Lokaha Sarvatra kind of principles. But those particular instructions that, you know, be a Prajapati, take care of your citizens and follow the brahmanas in protecting the citizens because you're kshatriya, that's specifically relevant for Maharaj Prithu. For somebody else, it may be become an expert at your musical instrument. You know, it's... That's a specific application of a universal principle. 
Then there's a lot of instructions from Lord Vishnu about distinguishing between the body and the soul. Distinguishing between the body and the soul. Knowing that we're not this body. And acting in that mood. And in fact, only when we know we're not this body can we be fully equipoised. Can we, you know, the, all these other things are resting on that. I'm not going to think of the welfare of all without malice. I'm not going to treat others equally. I'm not going to be undisturbed in happiness and distress. I'm not going to be able to control my mind and senses unless I understand that I'm not part of this world. Because as soon as I think I'm part of this world, that my identity is in this world, my identity is in this body, I'm going to have a lot of fear about protecting my identity in a situation where I cannot possibly protect my identity. You know, I, and I want to live, I, I want to be me, and I want to exist, and yet if I define me as this body or this mind, those things are not going to continue to exist. We all know that our body is going to die just in the last few days. Uh, another godbrother, Prajapati, passed away very suddenly. He was visiting a friend's home, and the friend saw him in the morning, went out, came back, and Prajapati had passed. So this is, it happens, it happens to people we know, it happens to people we love, it happens to everybody. Everybody's going to die. Not everyone's going to get notice. So, and then the mind. Uh, Krishna Maharaj was telling us about his mother, that his mother has d- dementia, and she can't even remember that she was married. You know, she, she, she's lost a lot of her, the identity of her mind. <laughs> he was telling us, a very funny story. He says that all she remembers is that she has two sons. But she doesn't remember that she says, I was never married. Anyway, so she, Krishna Swami was telling, telling some devotees the other day that he was talking to his mother and his mother said, by the way, I have a secret to tell you. I'm actually a Hare Krishna. And Krishna Swami said, really mother? Well, I am too. And she said, you are? You're a Hare Krishna. So we, we know there's a good chance that we're going to lose our minds. Um, we're going to lose our mental identity. And this is scary. And these fears that I'm going to lose my identity in terms of this body, I'm going to lose my identity in terms of this mind, because it's sure, sooner or later, uh, cause us to get into this attachment to happiness and distress. It causes us to want to protect ourselves at the expense of others. It causes us to have malice towards others who we think are threatening us. It makes us lose our equilibrium. That's the whole problem is coming from a false ego, as we know, as we say in ISKCON. Every, every problem is coming from this false ego, from this false identity. So this is the most important instruction of the Lord. And Lord Vishnu also says, how do we do this? We engage in bhakti above the modes. As Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Mamchayo Vyavicharine, Bhakti Yogi Nasevite, Sagunan Samatichaitam, Brahmabhuyaya Kalpate. So, how do we become fixed in our own Satchit Ananda identity? We engage in bhakti. And we find it, I find it uh, interesting that in this purport, where Prabhupada is basically summarizing, because one would ask, as I did when I first looked at this verse, what are these orders? You know, right before this statement, Prithumaras was speaking. This is the conversation. So I had to go before Prithumaras is speaking to find Lord Vishnu's orders. So just looking at this one verse, one might ask, well, what are those orders? And Prabhupada summarizes them with two verses, 1865 and 1866. 1865, which of course also is at the end of the 8th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, and Sarvadharma and Prichajama Mekamshanamraja. So, surrender to Krishna in love. It's interesting that Srila Prabhupada in this purport translates Dharma as material engagement. So, in one sense you could say 1866 is almost a tautology, it's almost just a repeat of what Lord Vishnu is saying here, follow my instructions, and what's the instruction to surrender to me? (laughs) 
So, you know, there, it's, it's almost the same thing, a little shade of difference. But when you add this Sarva Dharma and Prichajya, that adds another layer of understanding that surrender to me without any other identities, without any other dharma. What dharma do you have? What identity do you have? That I'm a surrendered soul. You know, I could follow your instructions. Like, I could be driving down the street and I ask you, you know, for directions. And I could follow your instructions without being overall surrendered and without being, you know, or giving up all other dharmas. It could be some very temporary thing. But to really follow someone's instructions, Sarvadharmam Prachajamam Ekam Sharanam Vrita, is at a deeper level. And then, Manmana Bhava Madbhakta. So, Majaji Mandamastri. So, one should, and Prabhupada would often emphasize this always think of me, become my devotee, offer obeisances to me, and render service unto me. So, to always think of Krishna, this is the key to doing all these other things that I'm absorbed in Krishna in love because I'm not just a soul separate from this body. I am a soul separate from this body who has a positive identity in relationship to Krishna. I have some positive identity of service in relationship to Krishna. So I want to act in that positive identity. I want to always think about Krishna. I want to do service to Krishna. And if I do that then I'm established in my spiritual identity. Then established in my spiritual identity, I'll be able to act in all of these ways. When I act in all of these ways, then I'm acting harmoniously with what is. And because what is is full of auspiciousness, then I also have a life full of auspiciousness. So this was all the positive. I will just very briefly look at the negative. Apramata. Don't become bewildered so one may ask why does that need to be said you know if, if, I, if I have the positive always follow the instructions of the Lord naturally I won't become bewildered but one also has to make uh, some effort not to become bewildered There's, as Prabhupada would use the word rules and regulations Prabhupada generally used the word rules to mean the positive and regulations to mean the negative. And we've talked about this before in relationship to Maharaj Prithu, the do's and the don't do's. What do I want? What do I not want? In our initiation vows, Prabhupada gave us four don't do's and one do. So don't become bewildered. Now, how could we become bewildered? How could we become bewildered? Well, Prabhupada explains here in this purport that there are many activities going on throughout the world in the name of religion which are not actually religious. And I will here fully and freely admit that I personally have done and thought and been many things that I, since joining the Hare Krishna movement, that I believed, convinced myself, were in Krishna consciousness that were definitely not. I, I remember being in a meeting, an education meeting with some devotees, and uh, one of them was Shamikarishi of the Oxford Hindu Center, and he said, you know, if we're going to have discussions like this, we're all going to forget about the little blue boy playing his flute. And it was such a revelation for me. It was like, oh... Yeah, he's right. Now, I was having uh, some discussion with my grandson-in-law the other day about something, and he said, you know, Grandma, that we have to judge everything by the fruit. And if we're going to, if we're going to make these decisions, we're going to go down this path, then we're not going to get along with each other. It's going to cause conflict in the family. He said, we need to make a decision where we're all going to continue to like each other and we're all going to get along. He said, that, that's what's most important. And we can forget that. You know, we can forget that. I, I, again, I've been guilty of this many times, just in my own personal practice and in my own preaching of Krishna consciousness. It's, it's a kind of niyamagraha, of course, where one becomes absorbed in some external behavior 
or some way of thinking without an understanding that the essence of religion, the primary principle of religion, as Srila Prabhupada says here, this is the primary principle of religion, is manmana bhava mad bhakto majaji that's the purpose. And often, even, you know, within a bona fide religious system, people get hung up on some detail of how they're going to follow the order of the Lord. Because just like here, Lord Vishnu is telling him, protect the citizens and follow the brahmanas as to how to protect the citizens and rule the kingdom. But that's not applicable to me. I, I don't have a kingdom. I, I don't have any citizens to protect. You know, does this mean that I have to go you know, somewhere and find a kingdom and protect citizens? You know, that would be missing the point. It would actually be something irreligious in the name of religion. So this sort of warning here is not just about a false religious system. Like in America, there's one organization that has status as a religion, legal status as a religion. It's called the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And they wear colanders. Colanders are they're like this metal bowl that has holes in it that you would put spaghetti in after cooking it to drain the water out. So they wear these on their heads like hats. So we're not just talking about the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster when we're talking about don't become pramata, don't become mad, don't become bewildered by a false religion. We're talking about even within a bona fide religious system to make sure that everything is in accord with the primary principle of religion, which is manmana bhava mad bhakto majaji mam naraskaru and sarvadharmam prachajamam ekam sharanam and if what we're doing is not bringing us and others to that point, then we have some pramata, we have some madness, we have some misapplication. You know, we've, we've all experienced, maybe we've been the victim of this, maybe we've been the perpetrator of this, maybe it's sometimes we're the perpetrator and it's sometimes we're the victim, maybe sometimes we're the witness of it. We're in the name of Krishna consciousness, somebody is driven away, and where they're, they're driven in the opposite direction of Satchit Ananda. So we want to make sure that not only do we do the real thing, but that we don't become bewildered by something that looks like it's the real thing and isn't. And then our life will be full of auspiciousness. So we have a few minutes for questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Sure, or anybody can write something in the chat window as well. I think I omitted everybody, but um, I have a question. Last uh-huh so I think we talked about that before but we'll look at that again so the question is because there was a lot of static is how is it possible for Pritchamaraj maybe you can mute yourself now yes how is it possible for Prithimarsh, who's a Shakti-based avatar of the of the Lord? Can you mute yourself because you're really yes to have to have envy? Because when we're saying here that Lord Vishnu, Lord Vishnu is giving this instruction not to have to think of everyone's welfare and not to have malice or envy. So Srila Prabhupada nicely explains in the in his purport to the 14th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, text 22 to 25 that as long as there is a material body, that the modes of nature will act on the body and we have to be neutral. And Krishna explains something very similar in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, 
where he says, Arjuna, one should be like the ocean where the rivers are going into the sea, but the sea is not disturbed. So anyone who has a body within this world, even if they're a pure devotee, even if they're empowered by the Lord as a Shakta-based avatar, that according to Shastra, I, I, this is not me saying this, this is Shastra, these feelings will enter into the mind and body. It happened to Maharaj Pariksit when he saw Shamakarishi. It happened to Jed Bharat when he was insulted by Rahugana. Which is fascinating because the insults given by Rahugana seem to me to be rather inconsequential. And the reason for this is very simple. It's not a difficult thing to understand. I've explained this before, explained this many times, but it, it's not a difficult thing to understand. Our bodies and, and brains are programmed for preservation. If they weren't programmed for preservation, we wouldn't live very long. The, the world is full of, of threats to the body. You know, we can be sickened, injured, uh, killed in so many ways. So the body has a defense mechanism built into it. This defense mechanism scans the environment constantly for some kind of threat. And when the amygdala in the brain, which is not part of the conscious workings of the mind, it's an automatic system, the amygdala in the brain, if it senses a possible threat, then it floods the body with chemicals to, for the body's protection. These chemicals stop digestion, they stop the immune response, they stop higher order thinking skills, thinking abilities, they send blood flow, especially to the arms and legs, they release often a flood of, of adrenaline and sugars and so forth, this is done to protect the body. So that if there's a pack of wolves there or somebody with a knife, that will be safe. And because we're social animals, this same protective, biochemical protective response is initiated by the amygdala if there's a social threat. So if somebody insults us, if somebody betrays us, uh, lies to us, uh, anything like that, uh, ignores us. The amygdala may say, this is a threat to your life. Then the mind interprets those that biochemical reaction in the body as a particular emotion. Those are not the emotions of the soul. They're not the emotions of Madhurya and Sakya and... It, Maya even, it's not even the fear rasa of the soul in relationship to Krishna. It, it's a distorted mirror of those rasas. Those rasas are not coming from a, a perverted type of self-preservation. The spiritual rasas are coming from a non-malicious giving love. But the mind interprets the chemicals in the body as something that we will call fear or anger. You know, the, the surge that, that we would have to fight off. There was a, something in the news within the last year of this hiker who was attacked by a young mountain lion and fought the young mountain lion with his bare hands and killed it. So our minds will interpret this, this surge as a kind of anger. Or malice. You know, you could say that that's malice. I, I hate the lion, I want it dead because it's trying to kill me. And if it's a, a social situation where we are, you know, again, our brain is, is just in a nanosecond interpreting that this person who insulted me is threatening my existence. They're threatening my access to resources. So it triggers the same response.
So those who are transcendentally situated don't identify with this behavior of the brain and the mind and the body. They don't identify with it. They're neutral to it. But it does flood through their bodies and minds as long as we have a material body and mind. Now, there are states like Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had his external consciousness, internal consciousness, and mixed. So when great souls are in a total internal consciousness, they have no awareness of these mental and physical reactions at all. They're completely unaware of it. Like a person under uh, anesthesia is completely unaware that someone's cutting holes in their body. The Bhagavatam talks about a person in this state, it's like an intoxicated person that doesn't know if they have clothes on or not. So when a person's in this deep state of absorption, then these biochemical reactions will still be happening in the body, but they're not even aware that they're happening. In mixed internal and external or external consciousness, then the soul is indeed aware of these reactions in the body. And sometimes are going to be very temporarily and very slightly affected by it. Uh, But they will very quickly achieve a neutral position as an observer. Generally, they remain in a neutral position of of observer. And you notice that Vishnu is, is telling Prithu, keep in that neutral position. Keep in that equilibrium. Or as Krishna explains in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, you, you pull the mind back. So the mind will go, oh, 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 there's anger. I'm feeling anger. And the mind may even go, I am angry, which is kind of ridiculous. It's an identity. I am angry. You know, how can I, I am angry. Like, I am a female. I am angry. I am envious. So the mind may even go to that point. And then one has to pull the mind back. So as long as we have a material body with these mechanisms in them, as long as we have a physical body with these mechanisms in them, uh, those things are going to go through the body and mind. Like the rivers are going to go into the ocean. If, If we're going to think that, you know, we're never going to have any rivers going into our ocean and the way we're going to be equal poised is there will never be any biochemical reactions in our body, that's not what our Shastras are saying. Now it is true that when one comes to Sattva Gun, that these biochemical reactions happen less frequently and only with great provocation. That is a fact. Somebody in Tamagun, the Tamagun puts them in such a state of, of fear and ego that the amygdala is triggered very easily. You could think of it like if you have some dial of sensitivity and if you're heavily in Tamagun, it's like the dial is all the way up and the slightest threat triggers it. Whereas if you're in Satvagun, the dial is, is at the baseline it has to be for physiological protection and hardly anything triggers it. So that levels of fear and anger and lust very rarely will affect the body and mind. But they will, they will sometimes. So, you know, a Shakta, an empowered Shaktivesha avatar, Jiva in a physical body who's empowered by the Lord, is not the same as the Lord. We, we see this uh, even with someone like Arjuna, who's a Nitya Siddha devotee. There's two instances we can think of. One where Krishna in the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita says, many, many births you and I have passed. I remember all of them, but you do not. So the soul, the liberated soul, is also all-knowing. We have many sages that are um, Sarvagya, Trikalaja. And why does Arjuna not have this? Well, part of that, of course, is rasa in his relationship with the Lord. But Prabhupada explains that he's a jiva. And he's in a physical body. Uh, Another instance is in Chasing Asvatama, where it says that the Lord's eyes were like lotus flowers and Arjuna's eyes were like red-hot bowls of copper. So there was, again, a physiological action in the physical body of Arjuna that didn't exist in the transcendent body of the Lord and that doesn't exist in our spiritual bodies. So that's there. 
And you might say, well, Armila, this is very depressing. I thought I would be free of all these things. We will. Uh, we will be free of all these things. First of all, once we're out of the body, as Prabhupada writes in his purport to 14, 22 to 25, then we are definitely free. There is no physiological reaction in, if we don't have a physical body. But even while we're in a physical body, uh, we're free if we don't identify with them. And if we find ourselves identifying with them even slightly, then we bring the mind back. We withdraw the mind from that identity and bring it back to the self. And the more we're in sattva and the more we're in bhakti, the less we're ever going to identify with them. And the, first of all, the less that they'll bother us because our sensitivity dial is turned down. And when they do bother us, when they do come, the, the, the more we'll be able to say, oh, I'm an observer. What a wonderful, wonderful system the Lord has made for the preservation of the body and the, and the identity in this world. How wonderful my Lord is. And... And we just, you know, we'll say, this is happening because of my own desires in having a physical body that led to a physical body. How wonderful my Lord is. I offer him more and more obeisances that he has made this amazing effort for my protection, but I don't have to identify. So that was a very long answer, but that's a very significant question. Uh, well, we could take maybe... absolutely fantastic. Well, th- thank you. So thank you. It, it, you're, you're not the first or the tenth or the twentieth person to ask that kind of question. Um, we could take one more question, and then I do have to go. I have a question. Yes. Um, I was um, recently reading some Buddhist um, book, and so they, it seems like they're have quite a influence um, seekers and they have this idea that ultimately we're nothing or we don't have an identity and um, how would we what's a good approach to try to help them understand that maybe they have a spiritual identity from my very limited understanding, I haven't done more than a cursory a study of Buddhism and other voidist or nihilistic philosophies. When, when we saw Srila Prabhupada in 1975 and my father was, was saying to Srila Prabhupada how the body is changing, we're, we're, we're constantly changing, and Prabhupada said at every moment, at every moment the body is changing. So what one who is transcendentally realized, whether it's through bhakti yoga, karma yoga, gyan yoga, or dhyan yoga, realizes is that at every moment, 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 the body and, and, and identity is being recreated and recreated and recreated and recreated, recreated anew. It's recreated anew on basically the same template, but it's being constantly, 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 constantly recreated. So when, if, if, if that's all the person sees, then they don't see any kind of continuity. Now, at first they might see a continuity that I'm the witnesser, I'm the knower, I'm the observer of this phenomena. I'm the consciousness of this phenomena. But if they only identify their consciousness as false ego, that consciousness is also being constantly recreated. So if, if their only identity is I am, you know, Mr. Patel, I am Mrs. Smith, then they become aware through factual realization, not, not philosophically, not again, but vigyan, they become aware that that is a constantly manifesting thing. It's constantly being created anew. Even that sense of, aware, of, of false ego. So how do we convince them that there's something more than that? Even the Buddhists will say that higher than this total detachment, higher than this total, for those few who achieve it, by the way, there's very few people that are going to achieve success in Gyan Yoga and Dhyan Yoga, which are the hallmarks of Buddhism. Impersonal, Dhyan and Gyan. That for those few rare persons who achieve it, most of them say that compassion is higher, that the, the happiness and the peace that they get 
from this understanding is surpassed by compassion. And that they will voluntarily reincarnate out of compassion. Like the Dalai Lama said to be the same jiva, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's said to be the same jiva who keeps reincarnating out of compassion. If we don't have an identity beyond this body, why would there be, why would compassion even exist? Compassion for who? Why? Who's taking pleasure in this compassion? So them under the Buddhist understanding that compassion is a higher principle, what are they talking about? They're talking about relationships. That relationships are a higher pleasure than impersonal or voidist realizations. I have found it very interesting, and I've talked about this before, that some of the contemporary persons who claim to have become Brahmin realized and say by the symptoms that we could at least provisionally accept that, will say that I don't want to exist on the Brahmin platform because I want to have the illusion of separateness so that I can enjoy relationships. And that's one of the biggest clues to the fact that we have a higher transcendent identity. Okay, thank you very much. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you.